0: Welcome to another episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm joined today by uh, our good friend, Andy Dolich, along with Tom Fox, president of the San Jose Earthquakes. And Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Uh, You go way back with Andy, so I'll let him introduce you. Uh, But we're really excited to to talk about soccer, uh, the industry, not only in the States, but also overseas and kind of your career path uh,
1: to the presidency. Great. Thanks, Jake. And I'm always questioning when people say you guys go way back. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So we've known known each other for a while in the business of business, which is where I would start, and then the business of sports. And Tom, as the type of background in which he worked, in my view, in the real business of business, um, and interwove that with the business of sports, uh, you know, with global brands. So if, if you could walk through or jog through or find space, as they say, in soccer, a bit of a career background sure. that gets you to the world of being a president of an MLS team.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And first of all, thanks to both of you for, for having me on today. Um, so as Andy indicated, I started uh, in brand management, which is years of brand management at Quaker, and that's I think what he's referring to as the the real business. <clears throat> in my third year at Quaker Oats, I found myself on the Van Camp's bean business, which uh, was not much of a brand to be marketed. It was more of a commodity, and I was looking for another opportunity in 1988. And the Gatorade uh, folks, Bill Schmidt and Hank Steinbrecher, were looking to hire another member to their team. And I moved over from a brand job into a sports marketing brand job um, and sort of never looked back. And and it was a real turning point um, in my career. And I did that there for about five years. Uh, Rick Welts, who we all know here in the Bay Area, came to me in 1993 and said, I'd love to have you come to the league office. And I was, I think, you know, uh, young enough at the time to know that I didn't know a lot uh, and thought that going to the NBA at a time when they were having incredible growth under I mean, really David and Rick, that there's a lot I could learn, and I was still very much in learning mode. So I uh, moved to New York, uh, and I was there about a year working in the partnerships area when David called me into his office and said, you've been to Asia once. How would you like to go open our first office in Hong Kong, uh, which I thought about for approximately five seconds. Again, it was a you know just another opportunity that was put in front of where I thought I could continue to to learn and grow, and I, I went to Asia. Went to Hong Kong in '95, um, opened up the first office there, and in Tokyo. And while I was there, was working very closely with our partner Nike, who was uh, well advanced in China. You know, the NBA was working business to business and working with a bunch of other brands to try to market the game. Um, but Nike was on the ground dealing with consumers at a very exciting time uh, in the history of that country, the history of consumerism in that country, and I. Thought I really wanted to be front and center on a consumer facing business. So I jumped ship after two years in Asia with the NBA and went to work for Nike, started first uh, in Hong Kong, and then after about seven months was moved uh, back to Portland in a U.S. sports marketing job um, and then found my way back to, to the Gatorade sports marketing group when Bill Schmidt moved on in 1999. Um, did that for eight years. Uh decided uh, to try my hand at the agency business out west with with a friend Casey Wasserman at a time when he was acquiring and trying to grow his business Um, and uh, did that for a little over a year and a half until I got a call from a headhunter with a British accent saying that football club named Arsenal was looking for their first chief commercial officer and I looked at my son, who was the same age, uh, nine years old that I was when we had moved to London in the early 70s as a boy. Uh, and I just thought this is a great experience for the family. So in 2009, I moved to, to Arsenal, took the family over there, um, did that for five years uh, and was then offered a chance to actually go run a Premier League club. The, uh, the American owned Aston Villa, Randy Lerner uh, owned it at the time. Um, even though I knew they were struggling. This was in uh, September of 2014 and took on, again, another challenge, another uh, opportunity for me to learn and did that for two full seasons. Uh, We were relegated in my second season. Randy sold the club, Um, consulted for a year, and then was looking for something that got me back to the West Coast where I had some kids that were in high school and uh, found myself luckily enough in San Jose with, with the earthquakes at a time when Major League Soccer, uh, is really, uh, I think at a, at a at really a seminal point in its, in its growth in history. That's my,
0: that's my history. That's my background. Well, you've, you've done quite a bit of things and, uh, to say the least traveled few miles. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, what, what kind of, as you said, it took you five seconds to decide when, when Rick Welts and, and David Stern <clears throat> talked about going to, to uh, Hong Kong, but, you know obviously that was to grow your career but when not when the other opportunities came up and going over to london etc was there any bit of a uh, more factors in your decision given your family etc
2: sure i think you always you i can remember when we moved back to london in 1975 it was a year earlier than then my father thought we were going to get moved back he was in banking and i had a, my my oldest sister at the time was just finishing up her junior year in high school uh, and we moved back anyway and you can imagine a, a young lady a young woman moving back uh, and going into a new high school knowing no one for her senior year that was a you know obviously a difficult time and I always remember that experience it didn't affect me as much I was much younger um, but I I did I thought about the, the family at the time I just remember that those three years we spent in London were hugely defining uh, for our family now my my kids have traveled um, far more than I ever had at the time. Their their mother is an American-born Chinese. They've been to China uh, thirteen years straight, volunteering at a special needs orphanage and and spending time making sure their language skills were up to stuff. So they they were far more well traveled than I was. But I just thought that living in another culture, um, you know, for a prolonged period of time gives you a greater appreciation for for this country and for what's happening outside of uh, of our own world. It gives them a global view. So I thought about it, but I i had had nothing but a positive experience and so that's why I, I think i viewed that positively for them
0: as well how have those global perspectives and views actually helped you in in your role right now with the earthquakes and, and being on the west coast and really an ever-evolving uh league in the mls you know uh
2: I, I think that the global view and my experience uh working and living in other countries helps me in in a, in a lot of ways not not just here but um you know there there's this there's this saying that Americans don't travel typically very well, and I, I think I learned at a very young age that no matter where you you were from, no matter what kind of accent you had, um there was always something you could learn there was always some value that that you could add and so when I was moved to London, I went there as an American, certainly, which for some people was polarizing I think certainly for some Aston Villa fans, it was somewhat polarizing, but the fact was i I'd spent formative years there and I think I knew enough about the country to be able to blend what I knew about sport and business from my time working in America with cultural sensitivity, my cultural understanding, Um, you know, knowing enough not to try to dominate every conversation, knowing enough not to believe I had all the answers, even though the, the sports marketing industry in America was probably, you know, at that time, eight to 10 years sort of more mature than what was what was happening in the UK so I, I think I had a sensibility about how to act how to behave how to conduct myself and mostly how to listen um, that that helped me when I was in those foreign countries and I think that obviously helps me in any role and certainly has helped me here you know soccers as you indicated Jake, it's, you know it's becoming much more more international so whether we're getting you know hiring a coach and I'm speaking to people I know back in the UK about possible European coaching candidates, or whether we're trying to find uh, teams who can come in and uh, play preseason matches here, I can use my relationships of that global uh, soccer network to sort of help us do uh, really what we do here. So, um, you know, I, I, again, I, my, my constant theme is, you know, being, being in a position to learn. And I think when you get out of your comfort zone, put yourself in an international role, you, you really are forced to, to sort of
0: shut up and learn. No, absolutely. And, you know, one would ask, you know, how you got into soccer, uh, especially on, you know, the EPL side and, um, you know, coming from the NBA and coming from the marketing side, as a lot of, you know, future sports professionals look to get in the industry, you know, the first reaction is what am I passionate about? What's my favorite sport? How did you go about, you know, deciding what to get into or, or what opportunities to try and pursue? Well, There's a there's a theme in my career, which is I seem to find my way into positions
2: that I have no business ever being in. So uh, I I came out of college from Miami of Ohio in 1985 with a political science degree. I had never taken a single marketing class and I got one of the purest brand marketing uh, brand management jobs there were with Quaker and their marketing associate program. I really had no business, uh, you know, getting in there because I was not a business or a marketing major, but I, I found my way in there through a variety of circumstances. The same is, is true of soccer. I never played the game. <clears throat> I was not a big fan of the game. I tell people that the first soccer match I ever went to was before. When we lived there, I went to, to Chelsea because our, our area of London where we lived was in Chelsea. I went in 1974. And then I was working on Gatorade in 1992 when the Premier League started. And we were looking to launch Gatorade in the early 90s in the UK. And then I went to uh, Highbury where Arsenal played at the time for the start the first match of the Premier League season against Norwich. Those were the only two matches I had ever been to uh, live other than uh, uh, two World Cup games in Germany before I joined Arsenal and, and went to my first game at Emirates Stadium in 2009. So, you know, I tell people who ask me all the time, a knowledge of the specific sport isn't necessarily a, a requirement. What What's happened to me over the course of the last eight or nine years, though, is I've become a huge fan uh, of the game for a variety of reasons. You know, I, I I really enjoy watching the game. I I can appreciate what those players are doing, um, you know, with their feet and the way that they work with each other. So I appreciate the way the game is played. But from a business perspective, you know, Andy Andy and I have had this conversation a
1: lot. Yeah, it, and it, I'm it, I'm back. I just came back from a remedial class on how to use the telephone <laughs> in 2019. I, I heard
2: you. So I heard I, you coming <laughs> out there.
1: Yeah, uh, I, that's usually that's my career. I come in, I go out. Yeah. Um, when but I... when you're finished with this thought, I have a brief story from yesterday afternoon on the global world of soccer, and then Great. a few questions. No worries. What what I was saying was, you know, as you and I have talked about a little bit, I was talking about how I'm a
2: fan of the game of soccer purely for, you know, for enjoyment reasons, but also from a business perspective. You know, I've got young children, and you know, they don't watch. Television in a linear way at all, and the idea of sitting through even live sport uh, and and having to endure commercials isn't something that they're very interested in doing. And soccer has this, you know, really incredible model, which I think has always in the U.S. been a bit of its downfall. It does not have a great number of television commercials that are blocking the fans' view to what they really want to see, which is live action itself. You know, we've got <clears throat> essentially you know, 15 minutes of of commercials, nine of those at halftime, but nothing happening during the action when the clock is running. And that to me is absolutely where uh, this generation wants sports to go, Uh, less interruptions, less commercials. And so I I, I really can appreciate soccer and understand why it's growing because it's sort of fitting uh, the viewing patterns more closely, uh, uh, viewing patterns of young people more closely than a lot of the other U.S. sports, which have relied so heavily on, on advertising revenue. So I, I think the sport's got a great deal of potential. So I, that, that, that's how I came to the sport and really why I'm such a big believer in it.
1: And the growth um, hit me, having been involved way back when with the North American Soccer League. And Tom knows this every time people say, wow, um, soccer is an overnight success. You know, let's <laughs> say the women win the World Cup or the incredible attendance at the MLS cup in Atlanta. And, um, so at the sports business journal awards in New York, if I'm right and correct me, um, uh, nominated and winning team of the year, Atlanta FC, there's right. nobody that five years ago would have put a prop bed in Vegas, that that was possible in any galaxy. Right. Number two, Another nominated team, the Portland Thorns, I have pride there because our friends, Merritt Paulson, Mike Golub, and Dewell's son, Corey Dolish, they were up for team of the year. And I think this is factual. They were the first women's professional sports team to be nominated for team of the year for SBJ and sports executive of the year, Don Garber. Right. So, how indelible of a positive um, mark in in the growth of MLS of Don Atlanta and the <coughs> Horn and other agencies that probably have a lot to do with the sport in this country? Um, if you had asked people years ago, would that be happening in twenty nineteen? They would say absolutely not, impossible. Don't yeah. bother me.
2: Yeah, I think you know. I think people are. I mean, people are, are aware that Major League Soccer is growing, but I think the some of the agencies that you're referencing and the people that are involved in the game understand uh, the closer you are to it, the more that you see. Soccer has a very unique demographic, and so this this marketplace has always been driven by the size of your audience and the sheer size of numbers, and the NFL obviously dominates that, but when you really start to drill down into what's happening with soccer, um, uh, it is a very unique audience they 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 have higher levels of income and education they're more likely to be digitally native uh, we are growing the size of our audience at a time when the other sports are seeing declines we have the youngest audience in professional sport and as kids like my kids look around the world and see the world absolutely is very flat i mean my son plays overwatch and he's got you know friends he gets online with that are in all parts of the world soccer is a game that you can follow across every border uh, uh, you know, and and it doesn't, it doesn't just live in America. It doesn't just live in England. It literally lives across the entire world. And it really is, you know, David Stern used to say sports is the only, you know, the only common language around the world. And Uh I would say that's true. And, and the only sports language spoken universally, I think is soccer.
1: And having, you know, you've been around the world. I've been lucky enough to be around the world in soccer the other great part about soccer is even if you don't speak the language of the country that you're at a game, hand movements, facial gestures <laughs> are, all, are really, right? They're all you really need to know. Yeah. And you know, another stat for the listeners, if you say, okay, last year, uh, three major events, uh, the national uh championship football game played at Levi Stadium. Right. Uh, the Super Bowl and MLS Cup. Uh would you please rank them, Mr. Fox, in attendance from one <coughs> to three?
2: Uh where was the Super Bowl last year?
1: Which, which, uh, which yeah, stadium where was, was the Super Atlanta? Bowl? No. Uh, was it in
2: Atlanta? They, it might have been. Cause it, yeah, it could have been Atlanta as well.
1: Or Minnesota. Oh. Minnesota. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I'm going to say I'm
2: going to say MLS wasn't third. The second
1: MLS was first. MLS was goodness. Absolutely. didn't know that till right now, which I find, you know, another amazing point. And to David Stern's, you know, visionary um, mindset, um, it is a global language sport. It's the last town square left in many countries where people can actually get along. And yesterday afternoon, um, I was doing a pitch along with the CEO of our fan-controlled football league to an unnamed company uh, that is a VC. And the three people that we were across the table from, one from China, one from Japan, and the other from Turkey, We had not met those people Mm -hmm. before. And we were explaining the concept of the fan-controlled football league. And I could see we had pretty much lost them when we said, has anybody seen an arena league football game? (laughs) (laughs) Excuse excuse me? So um, I looked across and the person that was leading it for the other group, we were talking about where we're from, and he was from Turkey. And I said, are you a soccer fan? And he goes, yes. And just by some, and Tom, you can correct me, I said, so do you root for Galatasaray? Mm -hmm. And he goes, how would you know that? (laughs) And and Saurabh Faroodi, our CEO, looks at me like cross-eyed, and then I go, Hey, congratulations. I know that they just won the Turkish Premier League title (laughs) last week. From that that moment on, no, no lie, from that moment on, we had the greatest conversation about sports and where it's going in the future and digital delivery, but it literally came from how did I know Galatasaray? So you, 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 and...
2: you, you essentially had a one in three chance because there's teams in Istanbul. You, if you had, said, <laughs> if, you had said, if you had said Fenerbahce or Bashir, probably jumped across the table and started pummeling you. So you got
1: well, we... that. I probably would have beaten myself up, but <laughs> it just it goes to show. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. with. The, the NBA finals coming up and the Warriors and how many people, you know, throughout China, Asia, South America, they Steph, you know, Steph Curry and, and you know, Lionel Messi where, you know, the other part of soccer's growth is it's not just MLS and and women's soccer and college, but it's, and Tom, if you can, give us some insight, it's the young boys and girls that are now following not only their favorite MLS or NWSL or college teams, but their international teams. So it's,
2: it's interesting. You, you, yeah, it is very much. And I think, you know if you ask anybody in the world, I can remember when I was living in Asia with the NBA, one of our big selling points was you ask anybody in the world, where do they play the best basketball in the world? And by the way, basketball is a sport that's played in more places than any other game other than soccer, right? It's easy to play. You can shoot baskets by yourself. You can do it in an urban environment. And as China was becoming less rural, more urban, basketball was growing exponentially there at the time. And I think that'll be the the case worldwide. But you ask anybody in the world, where do they play the best basketball? It's in the NBA. So the NBA has a singular advantage in that everyone knows they are the gold standard and the best. There's a debate in soccer, right? Um, Where do they play the best soccer in the world? Well, what's the best league in the world? Well, you could argue... It's the Premier League because they make the most money from television. They've got the largest audience because they share the most revenue, the most evenly from top to bottom. They are the most competitive league from top to bottom. And until this year, when you had all four uh, uh, English teams occupying the spots for both European trophies, people would say, yeah, that's not true, though, because... Real Madrid's won it three years in a row. That's not true because it's typically an Italian team and a Spanish team in the final, right? But but there's a debate to be had. The French League has a few teams that are captivating people on a global basis. You know, so does Spain, so do Italy, so do Germany. And increasingly, that means there's an opportunity for a league like MLS. It's not a foregone conclusion that the best basketball in the world will always be played in the place it's being played right now. When I was growing up, Serie A Italian soccer, was on television and was by far on an international basis. They were on China, in China on CCTV. They were bigger than anybody until the day that they weren't. And they, they, they're still scratching their heads as to how that happened. And now the Premier League has sort of usurped them. And unless they're focused on it, at some point the German League may surpass them, or the Spanish League. But it's it's an interesting conversation to have. And I think because you can have that conversation around the world, I think it leads to a great deal of interest in the game itself.
1: So let's take that one step further. On the global level, the U.S. women are, you know, as good as uh, as good as it gets, right? And if they were not to win the World Cup or Olympic gold medals, that's a shock, right? How in the men's side? And I've been lucky enough to be at, you know, I was at the World Cup in Italy when we gave Italy all they could mm-hmm. handle with Tony Miola. Oh, was that ninety or L- yeah, ninety, ninety, yeah so i know there's not a magic wand but over time what is the united states and mls and the and the soccer community what are the checkpoints that we can compete on the very highest level and someday win the world Cup?
2: i think what we're doing right now that we've we've never had a history of doing is we're starting to develop players in our professional academies and put a focus on developing those players. So you've got, you know, now 24 MLS teams, soon to be 26, ultimately maybe 28 clubs that are focused on funding and running elite level programs to identify and develop top level talent in America. We, you know, we have a a couple of phenomena in sport in this country that only exist here. The idea that you can go to a university and play sport at its highest level for that age group, and at the same time, get an education is, is a phenomenon that exists only in this country. And it's amazing and fantastic. But what it's led to is a youth development system that has uh, not necessarily been as focused or really subsidized to the extent that it has in, in other parts of the world on finding and training those kids. And I think what we're starting to do right now through through the MLS-owned academies, the DAs, is you know, work with the historical uh, uh, big development academies that are pay for play to try to identify kids who have some special level of talent, pull them out of that system and put them in a pathway that might take them into a university scholarship, right? That, that's why a lot of these pay for play DAs exist. If you want your child to go play at the highest level in college and you want to get a scholarship, which saves you a lot of money, I can get you there when it's going to cost you five to eight thousand dollars a year. Um, we're starting to pull those kids out put them into our academy and and the benefit is we 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 can certainly find a way to get you to college but you actually may have a pathway to a professional career if you come into our program I was out at training yesterday we had 10 of our academy kids training with our first team you know and I I have a picture on my phone of our let you know our iconic coach Matias Almeida crouched down speaking to these 10 young kids about the drill they were about to do and you could see the Sort of the mesmerized look on their faces, but in the in the starting sort of the senior level squad, was a 16 year old, um, and and a 15 year old, and our other 16 year old, Gilbert Fuentes, is away with the under 17s. But we've got two two youngsters that are actually training with the first team, and so I think the milestones will be uh, we will start to achieve it, you know at the under 17 level, at the All under right. 20 World Cup, we will start to achieve right. with the youth teams because we are now starting to develop talent in a different way in this country
1: yeah and you're seeing players like christian and others coming behind them that are already world-class players right
2: and here's the difference christian pulisic was taken out of the u.s system because the system here wasn't built for him and he was sent to germany right so what's happening now is all three we have a 15 year old and two 16 year olds those three players uh Two of them, at least, maybe all three of them are represented by the same agent as Christian. The reason they're staying in this market now is they're training with our first team. Christian would not have had that opportunity as a youngster, but they're training with our first team. They're getting instruction from Matias Almeida and, and Benjamin Galindo and our staff. They're getting the exact same treatment that our our veterans and our young professionals are getting because we're, we understand that that's the pathway to making them better first of all keeping them keeping mm-hmm. them in this country and having right. a, a, a really important role in their development that's happening now in a way that it's never happened before so i think what you'll start to see is 17s 19s 20s you know olympics under 23 teams i think you'll start to see us really begin to compete by playing a version of the game that is not necessarily the style mm-hmm. of
1: play that we've exhibited in the past and, and it's been it's been, been proven in, in sort of your previous example, like this uh, skinny kid from Greece, like, "Hey Giannis, right. uh, do you play basketball?" <laughs> <laughs> mm, maybe. Yeah. Uh, hey Dirk, what about you? Um, hey Tony Parker, how yeah. about you? And and what are there 135 international right. players now in the NBA right. playing at the very highest yeah. level? So, um, the the global growth, I my favorite viewpoint is if you look at the world it is a ball right. and you know nothing against the other sports but i don't know that anybody could argue that uh, few fu- existing and future global growth and quality is in soccer and basketball a because it's inexpensive you can do it yourself and you could do it at the highest level and finance really has nothing yeah, to when do
2: i was with it. at the nba you know one of the other positives that we would sell in the marketplace is that we were the most international uh, of the American sports. We had, you know, I think back then we had players from 24 different countries. I think now they have players from 26, 28 different countries. In Major League Soccer, there are players from over 70 countries playing in our league, right? That that So th- there's your point right there. Yes, the world is a globe. The, the, you know, the, the ball itself is, is a great representation of the fact that this is a sport that is played everywhere and around which people have great passion. And what we're trying to do is develop you know our own version of that in this country we 're doing it in a much more competitive landscape than any other country uh, in the world there We have uh, american football college football you know, at both a pro and college level We have basketball at both a pro and college level we have baseball at both a pro and a college level we have you know, 've got ice hockey you've got you 've got all these things that we're competing against. You go to other markets around the world and you really only start with soccer And in even in England cricket and rugby are are really distant seconds and thirds to that so we're trying to build it in a very competitive marketplace which is which is itself its own
1: dynamic and only because we're friends but it's the truth um how would you like to compete in northern california oh yeah our hockey team might be going to the stanley cup didn't work out that way but played until a few days ago Oh, the Warriors five times in the NBA Finals? That can't be right. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, Cal and Stanford, two baseball teams, two football teams, all within uh, you know an hour's drive, only because yeah, of traffic, yeah. of where the earthquakes are playing. So, And then just all the other stuff in the Bay Area? Good yeah. luck. I mean, that is a heck of a marketing. It, it and is. Check. It's a
2: massive fight for relevancy. You know, in a part of the Bay Area that itself struggles for relevancy, right? And the the south part of the Bay is not, you know, it's not the area of the Bay that has the strongest individual identity. Yeah, no. So we're we're in a very competitive market. We've got to try to find a way to to cut through. Obviously, performance is a way to do that. You referenced Golden State six years ago. Joe Lakehove was getting booed off the his own court, right? And now, and now. You know he's he's you know an owner of maybe the most you know successful and and uh, highly performing NBA team of all time, and that's saying something given the Lakers and Bulls dynasties. No, it's a it's a challenge.
1: And it works the, it works the other way where the Giants win three World Series in six years. A few years ago, nobody could see yeah. that coming. Now they're in the third of three bad yeah. seasons, and fans are going, "Nap, sorry, not interested anymore. Show me something." It's, very, it, very different. A, Tom, you know, yeah, uh, go ahead, Jake.
0: Tom, in, ter- in terms of growth, you know, obviously you're talking about the game, but from, you know, the perspective of the industry, you know, what do, what do the opportunities look like for people that maybe they're trying to get into sports or maybe they're, you know, in football or basketball mm-hmm. or baseball at other organizations, but they see soccer as kind of that, that change agent within their career to, to do something different? Yeah, we you know, most of our
2: workforce here we have 40 percent our kids right out of university so i think you know entry level roles within soccer are more prevalent um and most of the you know the people that are at slightly more senior positions here historically have come from minor league baseball and we've got some senior executives that came from other major league baseball teams but but mls has been a great recruiter of young talent and talent from other leagues which are which are smaller um you know, I think that's starting to change a little bit, right? It's changing in places like Atlanta and Cincinnati and ultimately Nashville and Miami and uh, and, and probably Portland, where you've got something that in those markets, this can be the most or one of the most uh, successful sports teams that are playing in that market. So they've got certainly much more, much more cachet. But I would tell people that are looking for for a career in sport, you know, first of all, any experience is great experience, whether it's in sport or not. Sales is sales, people management is people management, you know, getting rejected and sticking your chin out and taking a couple of punches in whatever industry is going to benefit you in this industry as well. But I would say that, you know, the, the ability to sell the sport of soccer in this country, I think is a great learning experience for for young executives, because it, it's, it's much more of a brand marketing exercise than it is about eyeballs and and real estate right we, we're not selling volumes of commercials to a massive audience watching on national television what we're selling is a very unique group of people they're a they're a highly sought after demographic as i started to indicate earlier they're growing um, and if you're not talking to those people through the sport of soccer you're probably not reaching them through sport they overlap with typical and traditional american sports at a far lower percentage than than fans of other teams and so it's it, it and andy described the challenges of being in this market I, if you really want to come in and learn the business and understand how difficult it is in a crowded marketplace to build and grow a brand uh i think the business model of soccer provides one of the greatest training exercises uh and and a, an incredible building block block for people's careers and so we we're proud of the fact that we bring people in and we train them up and we show them what it is we're doing and how to be successful and at some point they leave us, but they all go on to do, you know, something better. And we, we feel really good about the way we train these, these, these young people to go on and, and build a solid career in sport.
1: Well, and the, and the emotion I would also add as I'm thinking this through, as you travel the world of soccer or you go, around MLS, the emotion in soccer doesn't need uh, an LED screen to say, get louder, or to show a sound meter, or to have people with a flag bigger than an end zone, and and have their own songs and chants and live their own life, it's real. I mean, it's life, and to me, that also is an incredible attraction. And if you go uh, to almost any MLS stadium, they have developed their fan support groups at a level that you're not seeing in any other American Yeah, It's, sport. A,
2: it's a great point. I can remember it. I tell a story that when I got to Arsenal, I was shocked to see that at, uh, it, at you know, at halftime, there was a guy with a gun shooting t-shirts up into the stands. And I was, I was thinking to myself, this, this is like anathema to the way the English think about the game. And, you know, people used to joke about Americans coming in and bringing cheerleaders into the game. I actually took the T-shirt cannon out of Emirates Stadium. Now, I, I told people that not because I was some purist. I took it out because the, the upper deck on that stadium was incredibly high. And we were really concerned about somebody <laughs> reaching for a, <laughs> a cheap T-shirt and falling. But I found it so interesting. You're right. I mean, the, the game itself is so utterly organic because it's got a running clock. We're not having to do anything to pump up the crowd. Certainly, you know, the MLS clubs have done things around game presentation to make the intro more exciting, to make the scoring of goals, something that's more attuned to what U S soccer fans are all about. And I think it adds greatly to the environment, but the game itself, I agree with you completely. Andy, the game itself needs no hype. It it speaks for itself. And I think it is the most
0: purest form of sport. And I think that's why it's got such a global following. Tom, from, from a fan perspective to Andy's point, you know, you've got the, the, the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's who have been around forever and you've got the Warriors who've been around forever, but then, you know, it's almost like being the new kid on the block and for an, you know, uh, an area like San Francisco where you pick Atlanta or Cincinnati where mm-hmm. people are kind of from everywhere. How do you, how do you get them to become fans of something that's new that isn't deeply rooted in, you know, family history or, or um, any of that sort of stuff? Well, the, the, so I think actually the newer
2: clubs in our league have an advantage over the legacy clubs because they have the they have the benefit of, uh, of, of you know, sort of modern thinking. It's a little bit like, you know, why is the train system in Europe so much better than the rail system in America? Well, it was destroyed in the Second World War. It's been it was rebuilt in the last 50 years and ours is 100 years old. Right. So, you know, it, they mm-hmm. have they have the advantage of having seen what's been done in other markets. And there is now a model. For success that major league soccer feels very comfortable with you put the stadium in a city where it's in walking distance to bars and restaurants because the fans of those of this game in america are going to be those younger uh, professionals that are working in urban centers um and if you do that then you've got something that they're interested in uh, in participating in and you've made it easy for them the real benefit is the fan base in in these new cities are all game already it's on television all the time nbc has done an incredible job with the premier league so soccer in this country has been more exposed more recently than ever been exposed before and so you take the combination of growth in uh, in the urban course right the gentrification in areas of, of these major cities you put an anchor stadium in there you put it close to bars and restaurants you give people a community experience allow them to gather walk to the stadium and you get them to participate in a sport that that everyone is talking about, that is truly global. A lot of Americans have a, a shirt from a club in Europe, whether it's a Spanish club, an Italian club, or a Premier League club. Uh, the, there are soccer fans out there, and, you're, you're ta- you're, and they've been developed over a, a longer period of time. I, you know, the, the, the clubs that amaze me are the clubs that came into this league in 1996, and we were in in 96, ended up moving to Houston and then coming back to San Jose. You know, we knew nothing. I know the Galaxy built their stadium in Carson. Uh, the Fire built their stadium in Bridgeview. Um, the the, the you know, Dallas FC built their stadium in Frisco. We we didn't know ultimately what the audience was going to be. Those, those initial legacy clubs, they thought, let's put the stadiums in the suburbs because soccer is all about soccer moms and families. And actually what's happened is it's become this global conversation that young professionals are having anyway. And if you make it accessible to them, you're going, to have, you're going to have a successful business model. And it's why franchise fees are going up. It's why people are making a commitment to build purpose-built stadiums in and, and places like Over the Rhine and in Cincinnati. And it's, it's, it is the modern thinking today is a huge benefit to them in a way that the legacy clubs really didn't have. And those are going to be some of the struggles of our league, quite frankly. How do the legacy clubs – But what, what's, what's, what's 3.0 for, for a legacy club like us and others?
1: Yeah, and I'm thinking as we're drawing to the end of this conversation, which could go on for several more hours, (laughs) I'm looking at my rogues gallery of pictures in my office, and one of my proudest signed pictures is me and Johan Cruyff at a full RFK stadium with the diplomats. And for those people that know soccer, one of the 10 greatest players of all time and one of the five greatest minds maybe in soccer of all time, And that was, you know, 1976. And my son-in-law is a fanatical global soccer fan. And my granddaughter, who just turned two, will be up on Saturday morning with him at 5.30 or 6 a.m. watching every match from wherever in the world. And I just... Found a book that I bought her, and I'm holding it in my hand. And it's called "The Ultimate Soccer Alphabet Book." G is for Golazo, and uh, that, this is no lie. Um, it and it has great illustrations. It might be a bit old for a two-year-old, but I'm giving it to her this weekend, and I know she'll be memorizing it as soon as she can say Golazo. Love it. So if that doesn't if that doesn't tell you, you know, that we've sort of come full circle in this sport, uh, I don't know what yeah. does. So, Tom, we appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I know I'll see I'll see you at some gathering, uh, which you're the feature, and I've snuck in in the back. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, Jake, right, uh, right, right. anything you have to say before we uh, we move on?
0: No. Oh, Tom, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Um, share and uh, pass along the episodes with your colleagues for life in the front office. We're continuing to grow. Andy, I was telling Pat the other day, we're, we're nine plus months in and uh, looking forward to more and more episodes. So, um, Tom, again, appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, um, best of luck
1: throughout
0: the rest of the year. Well,
1: as, they say, as they say in the Bay Area in sports, go earthquakes, just don't have one. <laughs> right? <laughs>